Could you believe it? I was in a nightclub in the West End, a nightclub in the West End. At <laughs> 3.30 in the morning, I heard a voice, all right, um, speaking to me, you do not belong here. Man, I thought, mate, I'll smoke one too much, you know, I smoke <laughs> a bit too much, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, God was speaking to me. The Profile with Premier Christianity Magazine. Hello, you're listening to Premier Christian Radio with me, Sam Hales. I'm the editor of Premier Christianity Magazine. And every week here on The Profile, we talk to a different Christian to hear about their life, faith, and testimony. And I'm really pleased to say that my guest on the show this week is Les Isaac. Les is the founder of Street Pastors. We're going to be talking a lot about Street Pastors uh, in the next few minutes because they are celebrating 20 years this month of being uh, an organization serving communities up and down uh, the UK, the length and breadth of the country. You've probably come across them before, but if you haven't, you're going to find out lots about Street Pastors in the next few minutes. Les, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Sam. It's a pleasure. It's wonderful to have you on. Um, I've been looking forward to this for some time. Um, we like to start at the beginning. So do you want to take me back to what life was like for you growing up, where you were, and what kind of influences you had in your childhood in terms of your your faith? Did you grow up in a Christian environment at all? Yeah, well, I, I was born in Antigua, and um, lovely island in the Caribbean with 365 beaches and only 108 square mile. And, and so you could imagine the lushness of the country and all the the, the pleasures of the beach. Uh, but I came to this country partly because my parents came to this country. And after a few years, they decided, well, they're going to send for us. They left us in the care of my grandmother. And we came to this country. And I must say, it was a, there was a stark difference between Antigua and the, the sort of misty streets of Islington, uh, boarding with Camden. Um, it was cold. That was the first thing, Sam. You can imagine coming from the oven um, into the freezer. And that's <laughs> the way I described it. Yeah. And, and culturally, it was, you know, it was a bit of a shock, really. Um, it was different. It was absolutely different. But the good thing was my parents were here. And so I had to begin to learn to adapt. Uh, and yeah, But, you know, for me, I suppose like so many of those um, immigrant children, um, we came here and a year later, my parents broke up. So my father left my mother when I was seven years of age. And you can imagine the trauma, um, the pain that was. I also, you know, really discovered to my amazement that I was black. I didn't know that before. Uh, my, my parents forgot to tell me. But um, so I experienced a real challenge in times in terms of a young West Indian boy on the streets of London. Um, and yet, you know, in those times, I met some really good people. I remember a teacher, a teacher at school, Mr. Mr. Draper, and taught me to play the recorder and to, and to operate the puppets. And, and so there were some beautiful memories amongst the challenges and difficulties. Yeah. Do you remember how you found out, age of seven, that your parents were splitting up? Do you have memories of the, of the circumstances or, the, or even the emotions you felt at that time? Very much so, very much so. In fact, um, I do a lot of um, training with my wife um, on marriage, and I always use that illustration when when I see young couples coming 
to us to, to do a marriage preparation course or those who've been married 15, 20 years and are perhaps struggling a little bit. And, you know, the emotions, I remember feeling I'm unable to articulate the way I felt. Um, I'm, I felt angry. I felt disappointed. I felt I felt deep pain. In fact, I remember it's quite clearly that I remember saying to myself, if ever I become an adult, if ever I get married, if ever I had children, I would never, ever leave my wife because I would never want my children to go through what I went through. That's how painful it was. And it's clear today, I still remember those moments, that moment where my father left and he left with his gram and he moved out. It was a very painful time. I was struck by what you said about coming to this country and, and realizing you were black. And, and I suppose that's because you were in an environment where everyone else was black and then you came came to UK and suddenly, so you, can you remember kind of feeling like you were sticking out in some way? Was Was that uncomfortable? You know, I, I did, you know, first of all, culturally, um, back in the Antigua, I couldn't dare walk down the street and saw a person older than me and not say good morning or good afternoon or good evening. That was an insult. We'd never heard of that because we were taught from a very young age, manners, respect, you know, all of those things were so central within our culture. And I remember coming here and just, you know, saying to someone, good morning, and they just totally blanked me, Sam. You couldn't imagine how <laughs> I felt. And so next time I said, I thought, I better say it a bit louder because they <laughs> didn't hear me. And I said, good morning, good afternoon. And people just totally blanked wow. me. So I then began to realize that in this country, they did things completely different. Mm, yeah. And then again, you know, children, children could say some very spiteful things and do some spiteful things. And, you know, children usually tease me at school about the color of my skin. And, and so it was a real shock to me culturally and racially that culturally um, people didn't, you know, say good morning, good afternoon. Racially that, you know, people saw me differently because of the color of my skin. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure you'll remember as well as I do how the culture of London changed around. I remember the London 2012 Olympics and I remember people saying at the time, this is amazing. I'm getting on the tube and people were smiling and saying hello. Mm -hmm. And there was something about that moment where the, the culture of London changed and London has became a bit more friendly, but you're absolutely right. I mean, normally walking down the street in London, you would absolutely would not say hello to a stranger walking the other way. I've noticed though, and e even in other parts of the country, if you're out for a nice country walk in the, in the Lake District, perhaps walkers will quite often sort of greet each other as they pass, but it never happens in London. It seems to be something very distinct about London culture that we, we do kind of keep ourselves to ourselves and and it can be quite isolating, I suppose, for some people, especially if you're especially if you're not used to it. Yeah, I, I think it's it's an urban it's an urban thing, and again, it's because people are coming in, people are going, people are not building relationships, people are living in high rise apartment, and so and then you know um, fear um, people want to keep to themselves. And, and so is that because I go to Wales, I go to Northern Ireland, I go to Scotland. I remember going to Scotland and going up to the um, to Inverness and we stopped to this little cove somewhere along that coast there. And after we finished watching, looking at the sea and everything, the, the people there said, oh, come on, join us for a cup of coffee and, and some of the uh, some cake. And we had coffee and cake with total strangers. And before we went to go, the facilities there is to the right, to the left. And I was just 
blown away because of the hospitality, the generosity, and the friendliness of people. So I think it's something quite um, distinctive about urban contexts. Mm, yeah, absolutely. So tell me a bit about where Christian faith first came in the picture for you. Did you encounter Christianity uh, growing up at all? Well, I did. You know, I, I often tell people that I was a good Methodist, you know, um, good Methodist there. Uh, and um, when I came to this ch- uh, country, obviously part of our culture was to go to church. And and I went to church. But I, I must say that my experience um, in, in, in the widest community and in society sort of blighted my, my thought process and made me question a lot of things about church and about religion. And I remember one of the thoughts that I had was, how comes, you know, I worship a guy there, um, a white guy who looks like the people who don't like me, who hate me outside. And so that created a bit of tension within my mind. And also it it sort of fueled my sorts of disillusionment with Christianity. And I remember by the time I was 10, 11, I became very disillusioned. And in fact, I shifted towards Rastafarianism because it talked about Black, it talked about Africa, it talked about emancipation, and all these, you know, they're big words, but there was something that was resonated in me because of my experience. So I got very disillusioned with church as a very young, young boy, young child. Um, and, but later on, as I went on, totally away from God, God had a beautiful way of really speaking to people. And I tell people, listen, it doesn't matter where your child or your son or your husband or your wife is, you pray for them because God has a beautiful way through his spirit, through his word to get to them. And Sam, could you believe it? I was in a nightclub in the West End, a nightclub in the West End. At 3.30 in the morning, I heard a voice, right, um, speaking to me, you do not belong here. Wow. Now, Man, I thought, mate, I'll smoke one too much, you know, I'll smoke a <laughs> bit too much, you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, God was speaking to me. And then on another occasion, um, we used to go and meet and smoke um, in a place called Primrose Hill in London on a Sunday afternoon. And I met a Christian guy with his Bible in his hand, and he spoke to me about Jesus. You know, Incredible, because I've never heard about the story about Jesus, like the way this guy was saying it to me. It was incredible, because I remember going to church and thinking, man, I'm so bored in church. I remember thinking the only thing I get, I got in church was woodworm in my posterior, because it was so boring. But this guy spoke about Jesus in a very powerful way. And you know, Sam, he quoted the scriptures to me. He's quoted from the book of Proverbs. There is a way that seems right unto a man but at the end are the ways of death, quoting from the old King James Version. And I went with my friends and we were smoking away. And you know, the only thing, Sam, I could really reflect on or think about was those scripture verses. So God was in a nightclub. God was with me and my friends smoking drugs. And God was right there. And I tell people, what was God doing in these places? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) He was there. So, you know, I began a journey disillusion about Jesus, about Christianity. But over the period, God began to really speak to me and to reveal himself to me. It's amazing. There's so much of what you've already 
shared in your story that that makes total sense with what you went on to do with Street Pastors. I mean, not just the fact that you heard the voice of God in a nightclub, but I think what you were saying before as well about in urban environments where they're not being that sense of community and connection. Are there other parts of your early life you can now look back on and see, I can see how God was not just leading me to that point of salvation, but I can see how God was doing things in my early life that ultimately would lead to this ministry in Street Pastors? I think very much so, because I remember when I became a Christian, and, and again, Sam, um, you know, I tell people all the time, you know, you don't have to live a dramatic life like me and have the same experience because God works differently with different people. God is a beautiful God and he meets us where we're at, okay, regardless of who we are. And, and it was really interesting because when I became a Christian, I all of it, the question that I asked myself was, why didn't I hear about Jesus before now? That was the question. Why was it that no one told me about Jesus? And, and I said to myself, listen, you know, I went through all of that. And, and I realized that God was speaking to me as though no preacher, no evangelist, no Christian, you know, spoke to me about Jesus. He was there ministering to me. So that question of why was it that I didn't hear have always resonated in me. And one of the things I said to myself when I was just converted, I said, listen, I need to go back to those youth clubs. I need to go back to those places. I need to talk to people about Jesus. I'm not going to become a Bible basher, you know, walking around with a four by four Bible and beating people over the head. But I just want to help people to understand that the Jesus of the Bible is the Jesus who came into this world out of love, mm -hmm. came with love, out of love. He demonstrated all that with love unconditional love. And I really felt that I had to really become an agent uh, um, for the gospel of Jesus so that people could understand that, hey, this is powerful. This is not boring. This is not dead. This is not morbid. This is not, you know, something that's crazy off the spectrum, but this is powerful. It's personal and it's dynamic. Mm -hmm. And so I think for me, those kind of things always motivated me. And, you know, when I later on um, became a minister and was ordained, I said to myself, my church has to look out. My local congregation had to be a church that looked out. And I got up to some few naughty things. I was saying to some folks on Sunday, one of the things I did, my church, you know, you walked in church and you walked straight in and you saw the chairs and the altar right before you. So I came in church one Sunday morning and I, two hours early, and I turned all the chairs around to the other side. And to my amazement, people came in church and said, whoa, where's my seat? <laughs> and I'm saying, there's 200 of them there. Take any one of them. And I realized that I had to do things to say to the church, it cannot be business as usual. Mm -hmm. We've got to change. And part of it is we've got to take this gospel outside of our four walls and share Jesus. So yeah. I've been doing that for years. So tell me a bit more about that that time between that encounter with God in a nightclub and becoming a church leader. Uh, just tell me, put in the blanks there of what happened in your life to get you get you to that point. It's, it's a long blank, you know. <laughs> it's, a, it's a long blank. How many years was it? Was it was it ten years, fifteen? Well, yeah, it was about ten years or so. Ten years, yeah. It was no, it, just under ten years. But I think for me, what happened was more and more I got passionate about sharing Jesus and more and more people heard me 
and began to invite me to come and speak at their youth group. They do some epilogues, you know, the old epilogues and, and youth clubs. And I'm, I'm amazed the amount of youth clubs and churches that I've been to over these last 40 odd years, you know. And um, it was out of that, um, my local church decided, they said, hey, look, we see the call of God on you. And we really want to help develop you and train you up. And I had two really good pastors, a guy called David Perry and another guy called James Kane, and both of them have gone to be with the Lord. And they were absolutely superb in terms of recognize that God was doing something in my life, helping to nurture and cultivate that gift that God has given mm. to me and creating the space for me to flourish. I love what you say about about evangelism being this sense of, wow, God loves me. And why has no one told me this before? And clearly for you sharing your faith in those youth groups, it it came from a place of I've had a real encounter with God. And how could I not share that? And it strikes me that that's the only way that evangelism works. Evangelism doesn't work when it's this sense of duty and obligation. Oh, I really should tell my friends about Jesus. It only works when it comes from that place of of passion because you because you want to you want to share what God's done. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, I was reminded some folks, I was in the Caribbean last week, and I was saying to them, hey, listen, listen, let's remember what God has done in our lives. Let's remember how he came into our life and the power of the cross, that transformative power of the cross, redemptive work of the cross, what it did to our lives. And I said to people, look, if we remember that, if we value and appreciate that, then come on, we'll be excited about sharing Jesus. And for me, I've always thought, all the way through my ministry, um, that I want to be excited about Jesus. In fact, when I became a minister, I said, I said to my superintendent, "Listen, I get bored. I get bored if I'm in there for um, four Sundays a month. You know, I need to be out there. Okay, so please don't restrict me with that because you know part of the church's role and responsibility is to be salt and light. You know, in this world. So for me, that was exciting." And I've always, you know, done, I remember I was saying to the church in the, from March right away through to September, we should sort of shut our evening service and we used to be out on the streets Sunday um, evening, afternoon, and just hang out, you know, open your gospel, take the piano out there, share Jesus, set up, sing a few hymns, get the choir to sing, and then I would speak for 10 minutes, and then we'll all talk to people about Jesus. And, you know, people became Christians. People heard the gospel. It was explained to them. And they made a choice to say, listen, I want to plug into God. I want to plug into a local church. And not sometimes it was not a local church, but they went and they found Jesus. That was the key business. They really discover the power and the love of Jesus. So it sounds like street pastors would have naturally grown out of that environment for you of just naturally wanting to take the church back onto the streets. So tell me a bit about the early beginnings of how how it all began. It was interesting. I was, in fact, I, I was at a meet. At, I was at a meeting at the Evangelical Alliance down when it used to be down in um, in Kennington. And a journalist rang me and said to me, uh, hey, listen, Reverend, what, what's the problem with our today's society? What's the problem with young people? Is it poverty? Is it lack of education? Is it parent? What's the problem? And, you know, I remember that conversation very clearly because, you know, that journalist caught me off guard. So I sort of, I did what my daughter tells me to do. Anytime you get in trouble, style it out, she says. So <laughs> I, I gave him an answer. <laughs> I kind of remember what I said to him. But after that phone call, I began to look, began to drill down, look at what's the problem, 
where is the problem? Who's involved in the problem? And I began a journey, at least for two years, searching. So I met with the police. I met with a local council, leader of council, the mayor. I met with community leaders. I met with school teachers. And I met with young people. And I, I met with them because I wanted to be informed. What is the problem? You know, how did it start? You know, what is the remedy for it today? How can the church be relevant and be practical in here? I went as far as Jamaica on a fact-finding trip to look and see their challenges and how the church um, was responding to that. And it was amazing because when I came back from Jamaica, I went to see the local borough commander in Lambeth. And I said to him, what's the most challenging time for you and your officers within a 24-hour cycle? And you know what he said to me? Between two o'clock and five to six, crime is at the highest. He said, we don't know what happens five to six. We believe Johnny's at home and he's going to have tea. But he said then that the highest crime rate was between two and five to six. What happens at that time? Young people leaving school. Crime rate has always been higher amongst young people. Major challenge. Then he said to me, the second um, difficult time was between 10 o'clock and 12 o'clock of a night. And then... The third challenging time was at 2.30 to 4 o'clock in the morning. What happens at 10 till 12? People leave the pub and go to the clubs. What happens from 12, 12 to 4 o'clock or 2 to 4? People leave the nightclubs and go to the kebab shop, go to the bus stop or the taxi place. That's where all the tensions are. So I said, well, it's difficult to get people to, you know, volunteer during the day. So let's start with the nighttime. Let's get them in the night. And that's how we started. So I met with a guy called David Chassonier, Reverend David Chassonier, and another guy called Ian Critchlow. And together we sat in my front room and says, how are we going to do this? And we were talking and and I said, well, hey, we need a pass to the street. So what should we call this thing? And I said, you know, the streets is a problem. We need a pastor. And we took the word shepherd carer. And, you know, I remember David talked about the sacred, the, the sacredness and the sanctity of human life. And he came up with a five point, you know, about what our message, our core message. And I remember that Ian Christo, who's a police officer at that time, said, what about safety? What about training? How do we identify? And by the time we left my front room, we had street pastors wrapped up. Wow. It was incredible. It was a. A wonderful evening. I never forgot that evening. And then we said, well, how are we going to make this happen? We ain't got no money. The trust, Ascension Trust doesn't have no money for that. The trustees are going to say, where are we going to get the money from, Les? And let me just tell you something. What was so beautiful. I remember having a conversation with the Baptist minister, Robert Wally Hudson Roberts. And we went up to Didcot and I met Ian Kofi, who was the general secretary at that, that time. And we, sit, we sat there, the three of us. And Ian Goffey says, Les, this is fantastic. And, you know, back to some missional people. You yep. know, it's their DNA. He said, Les, I could see this working. It's fantastic. And I cannot just talk and pray with you without doing something. And the Baptist, the Baptist guys gave us seven and a half thousand pounds to do training, to buy uniform, and to make this thing happen. So, you know, God bless the Baptist for that. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it was everything else is what you've seen today. Yeah. 
And I love that right at the heart of that story, as you say, you've already got Christians of different denominations working together right, right from the beginning. Yes. Talk about the Baptists help you financially. And it and Street Passers has always had that, hasn't it? You know, when you if you if you meet a street pastor, all you really know is they're a Christian. You've no idea what denomination they are, and each team could be made up of all sorts of different church backgrounds in the local town. Exactly. I you know, I, I often tell people I read a book years ago called The Urban Christian. Urban Christianity or Urban Christian by Dr. Raymond Backey. I read that book many years ago. And there was something that really fascinated me in that book. And it was his analysis of the city of Chicago. And he talks about what the different people, people group brought to that city, whether they're Polish, whether they're Italians, whether they're African-Americans. He talked about that. And he talked about the Irish and how they were unique in what they brought to the mix of that city. They understood the power of the police, okay? They understood the power of the politician. They understood the power of the priest. And in every city, in every place, you've got the church, you've got the police, and you've got the local government. Government, The three biggest gangs in town, okay? They have power, they have influence, they have resources. And he said, but these guys, you know, the Irish brought them together because they understood the need to ensure that their community is, and not only their community, but people are looked after. And these were the three great power brokers within those communities. Mm -hmm. And I believe that if the church could work together right across the landscape, if the church could work with the police, if the church could work with local authorities, because we all bring something different to the mix. And so it was really important. And I didn't want it to be a, you know, charismatic Pentecostal kind of stuff. It needed to be the church. It needed to be the church. And I tell you something, one of the, my greatest joy is to see so many different Christians come together, um, come together, pray together, work together, and not have any ding-dongs about our theology. <laughs> yes. And it, and it strikes me that, that when you're on mission and when you're busy caring for people on the streets, whether it's helping someone get home if they've had too much to drink or making sure the, the emergency services are there if someone's fallen over and hurt themselves, it strikes me that you're too busy caring for people to have those theological debates, perhaps. <laughs> well, you know, I say to people, look, when doctors are in a theatre, um, could be an atheist, could be this, could be that, but they just got to concentrate on the job. Yeah. And, and, and the great thing I think that this has done for us, it's really helped us to respect each other. It's really helped us to have, you know, good relational conversation about what we believe, why we believe. It, it just, do we do. And it was interesting hearing people say, you know, I've, I've seen that church for years. I grew up in this place, but I've never been to that church. I never knew anyone from that church. Now I do. Isn't it wonderful? Too many of us are living in a bubble and not hearing both sides of the world's important stories. It's time for a more rounded perspective, balanced, relevant. Discover fresh biblical perspectives as we bring you wide-ranging stories that impact the church, wherever you live, however you worship. Discover the go-to source for Christian news. Subscribe now at premierchristianity.com. Now only five pounds for three months. Just for, the, for those who may not be aware, can you give us a bit of an insight into what an average night looks like if you're a street pastor? What are they doing? What are the circumstances in which they're ministering? I guess, what are they there to do and what are they there not to do as well? If you're a, a Christian in a high-vis jacket that says street pastor, what kind of goes down on the average evening? Well, you see, 
the average evening, and there's no such thing as an average evening because it depends whether you're in an urban, coastal, or you're in a town, big town. It's all different, but there are characteristics. Now, what happens is, you know, we meet up and the team meets up for prayer and to be briefed. So they they may get a report from the police to say, look, over the last couple of weeks, we've been having problems here at this time or that time. It'd be really good if the street passes could be there. And um, and we pray. And then we have people we call prayer pastors praying for us, sometimes at the base, sometimes in their home, sometimes in another church, just praying. That could be anything from two, three, or five people, or 10 people praying while the street pastors go on the streets. When we go on the streets, we're, we're actually in twos, in pairs. You know, we're in pairs so that we don't overcrowd people or people feel a sense of overwhelm. And we are always in eye distance of each other. So we're on the other side, two up front, two behind, two in the middle. So we're always watching out for each other, but we're always just looking. And when we go out, invariably, people stop us. Here, mate, what's the street pastor? What do you do? Who are you? People come to us and ask us. So I remember one night I was in New Cross and a guy says, mate, mate, they're religious. That's Latin. Pastor's Latin, mate. They're religious people. <laughs> you know, and it's really crazy. 2.30 in the morning, people, you know, queued into their Latin. And so what we do, we're looking out to see what's happening. It could be a young girl who's vulnerable. It could be a young lady whose drink's been spiked. She's sick and, you know, she's acting strange. It could be someone who's lost. It could be someone who's contemplating suicide. But we're looking for those people because sometimes the eye contact, the body language, we're looking for those people. Sometimes people come up to us and just want to talk. Excuse me, can I have a conversation? My nan died last month, you know. Um, where's she gone? You know, this I'm feeling. So it really varies. And then, you know, certain times of night, you get people who are drunk, worse for wears. And so if that's happened, you know, within a team, there's a protocol to deal with that. And um, the, the key thing is, who is that person? Has she got a friend? Um, is there a number we could call someone to get a home? Can we, and we work with the taxi marshals and we say, can we get a home safely in a taxi or do help sober up? We work with the nightclubs as well to say, look, create a space for us so that she could come back in that nightclub. Someone's looking after her. Two hours later, she sobered up a bit. We can make sense of what she's saying and get her home safely. There could be a potential fight. We see two groups eyeing up each other. We split up in twos and try to part them, talk to them, give them lollipops, and the fight's gone. It's finished. Everyone's gone away. Our secret weapon is nans. Our <laughs> nans and granddads. Yeah. They are absolutely superb on the street absolutely superb if there's a bit of tension i get i said where's the man and i get behind her um, yeah. and you know it's amazing because people out there respect us and if they see they say street passes any problem give us a shout on the radio any problem we'll come to you because you are our street pastors and it's really amazing because people ask us for prayers on the streets at night the door staff the nightclub owner, you know, the people are there, you know, give them a quiet space and they ask for prayer. So the evening, usually 12 o'clock, one o'clock, we go back to base, have tea and coffee and lovely cakes and or a bowl of soup. And then afterwards, um, we go back for a second shift and about three o'clock, we're winding down 
and we're back in the base by 3.30, home by, um, on our way home by just after four. And you've hinted already at this, and you must have so many stories, but can I ask you to pick out maybe just one or two of people who really just stick in your mind of, of either people you've personally met whilst being a street pastor or, or just other people who have encountered street pastors and, and have amazing stories because of it? You know, I was really blown away. Um, I was in Preston last year, and I went to speak at one of their relaunch meetings post-pandemic. And there was a chap there. We met him at the station. We took him to the meeting. He was speaking just before I got up. And he said, he spoke about his life, his pain in life. His mother um, had some um, mental health issues. And she said, the house on fire, the cat died, etc. He was taken away to care. And that's, he was abused in care, he said. And he said, he, you know, he lived a chaotic life. He said he was involved in all sorts of drugs running. And, you know, he was shot, um, end up on the streets. And he said one night he saw his friend doused with petrol by some guys and set a light and he died. And he said, you know, that that night he said, the universe hates me. I hate the universe. I want to die. That very night he met a group of street pastors. One of them came up to him, held his hand and touched him and said, you are special and God loves you. He said, the only person that ever touched me before was to hurt me. When this woman touched me, I knew it was love. And she told me I was special. And she told me that God loved me. He said, it just blew my world apart. They left. They prayed for him. They left. Unknown to them, he became a Christian, went to rehab. Um, you know, went to a local church, got nurtured, grown. He's now preaching the gospel. He's now speaking at different local authorities' event. He went to a meeting, and um, the street the street pastor was there, and he sat on the same table as the street pastors who touched him, told him God loves him, told him he's special. The street pastor didn't know it was him. He got up and spoke and he said everything that I said. And he said, and the street pastor who said that and did that to me, there she is in the crowd. And you can imagine the street pastor, tears in her eyes. And, in, and then he said at the end of his speech, don't you stop being a street pastor. Keep doing it because you don't know the lives that you've touched. You don't know the lives that you've changed through what you do and through the message of Jesus Christ. That's powerful. Yeah, And we could repeat many in our book, um, Faith on the Street. There are many stories like that of yeah. the church really meeting people where they're at and Christ making a difference to their life. Yeah. <clears throat> Amazing. Incredible, incredible stories. So as I say, Street Pastors is is celebrating 20 years of ministry. I don't know if those 20 years feel like 20 years, Les, or if they've flown by. But um, what I'd love to know from you is, you know, what have been the challenges? Because it, it, it sounds amazing and it is an incredible story. And it, in one sense, like, like all the best ideas, it's quite a simple idea. Christians on the streets helping people. But in building a ministry like this and it growing so rapidly, I mean, you know, major towns and cities, length and breadth of the country have teams of street pastors now. You don't grow a ministry like that in 20 years without challenges. So what have been the biggest hurdles you've faced? 
you know, with everything, there are challenges, you know, a great deal of challenges. And um, we've just got to recognize that they come together. Challenges helps you, it grows you, it makes you learn. And so for me, um, just seeing sometimes um, how difficult it is sometimes to explain to church that, listen, um, evangelism doesn't just come in one way. It's not just getting a microphone phone and doing a proclamation. I do that all the time. But evangelism, two things about evangelism is this. One, there's not just one way. God uses all different ways of, of getting through to people. So we can't just say that's the one way. Secondly, evangelism takes friendship, credibility, and time. You know, I say to people all the time that, you know, you're expecting people to come into church just like that. No, no, no. You know, Jesus spent time breaking bread with people. Jesus spent time being amongst people, the publicans and the sinners. People said about Jesus, hey, he's accessible and he's not like the religious guys. Okay. And so what I've seen over the years is that it really takes time to convince the church that actually here's what God is doing. God is doing something great. And it's not just for one minute. You know, I think sweet pastors, as I was meeting with the Salvation Army guys, I said to them, you guys are the forerunners of street pastors. You know, I love the Salvation Army. You guys are the forerunners. You you taught us that if you get out there, if you get amongst the people, you could salt them, you could light them, and you could change people's life through the gospel. And so for me, at times it's been difficult just trying to convince some of our churches yeah. that listen let's listen let's let's get together let's do it and let's be consistent in doing it on our streets mm. in our yeah communities. it's really interesting of, of all the challenges you, you could have mentioned i'm sure there were others it's interesting to me that you, you mentioned one that's actually on us as christians the challenge has been communicating this to other christians and, and i suppose i suppose correct if i'm wrong but i think some of what you're saying here is this this charge from some parts of the church of but, you know, but it isn't enough. Why aren't you there with flyers? Why aren't you there with megaphones? Why aren't you kind of on the front foot with the gospel? It's 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 the gospel. It's that people need to repent. That's that's what they need to hear more than they need a, a pair of flip flops. That seems to be the kind of the kind of criticism, I suppose. How do you respond to that direct criticism of but but, you know, we want to communicate the, the good news, not just in actions, which is great. But what about with our words? Why can't street pastors be more evangelistic with their words? What's your answer to that? You know, I tell people. I'm an evangelist. God's called me as an evangelist. Um, spoken at QPR with Louis Pillow, done stuff with Billy Graham. I've been doing church mission for years, okay? And yet, you know, the I found that being a street pastor has opened some incredible doors, had to had some relationship and conversation with people. Listen, man, I love Jesus' passion. I tell, I tell the police, I tell governments, I tell local authorities, hey, listen, guys, I'm in the space. But you, and you, but you can't leave Jesus outside because he's dwelling richly within me. And, you know, people say, Les, you know, I can't understand you. I say, well, let me explain. And I'm sharing Jesus. This is a, it's as if I'm on a continual Mars Hill. Okay. And you can't get it, you know, better than that. The opportunity to share Jesus. So I would say to my brothers and sisters, listen, get in there, get out there and just bear with people. Because you see, people are disillusioned. People are angry. People feel disappointed. Let's earn the right to get in there and to talk and to share and to understand where people are at and start from where they're at. 
not from where you and I are at. And when we do that, of course we can share Jesus. Of course we can share the gospel. And so, you know, I've been invited by non-Christians to come in and to just share Christmas message. What am I going to talk about? Santa Claus? <laughs> I <laughs> hope not. <laughs> I'm going to talk about Jesus. <laughs> People said, come on, come on, I'm celebrating my birthday party. You know, come in, Les, and, and share something. What am I going to talk about? The latest drink? I'm going to talk about Jesus. You know, it's God creating those space for me to talk about him and his kingdom. And I said to myself, what is really frustrating is that we have a lot of openings, but we haven't got the churches plugged in. You know, I was in a nightclub and they've invited me to come to see what they're doing and how they've made improvements on looking after those people who come to the nightclub. And I'm thinking, there's the managers, there's these guys. I'm thinking, oh, where's the local church that I could introduce the pastor to these managers, to this club, and they could take this club on as a to pray for this club, to pray for the people. I can't find them. You know, Christians are, are tucked up in bed at nine o'clock. They're gone. They're in the third heavens by 12. That time society is moving. There's a net, you know, that nocturnal society is moving. So we've got to realize that evangelism is different in the 21st century. It's different. And we've got to understand that unless we're relevant in it, we won't touch people. I've said that, that Street Pass has grown massively. Are you kind of content and pleased with that? Or are you more seeing the glass a bit half half empty, thinking that there's so many places we still aren't? Oh, man. Hey, Sam, there's so many people. There's, uh, you know, um, you know, we're, we're in far as far as Australia and America and Africa, right? But let me just say this. This is such a practical thing. If I believe that every local congregation would come together and say, hey, guys, let's just get a team out, even once or twice a month. Let's just get a team out. And just be there. Call it whatever they want to call it, Sam. <laughs> and just be there. You would see a change. We will see a major change within five years in our society. Because people just want relationship. People want relationship. I was speaking in uh, on patrol in Kent, in, in um, sorry, in Bromley. And, um, and um, a guy said to me, mate, he said, I've been watching your people for one year, he says. And then, you know, after a year, I realized that these people are genuine. And he said, they are our street pastors. They belong to us. They have, you know, we, they've got us because they've been faithful. They've been consistent. They, they haven't just come because they want us to get, they want to get us into their church. But they've come because they've got a genuine concern for us. Isn't that the gospel message? Hmm. God so loved that he gave. Yeah. God, God came into this world. You know, I, I just think that's really powerful. And so that's what I get frustrated about, that we are not doing it. And yeah, I get frustrated because, you know, so often we look for the new thing. What's the new thing? And yet God hasn't finished with the thing he has done so many years. You know, God is doing something. Let's recognize it and let's say to ourselves, hey, church, let's get involved. And let's, mm -hmm. let, let's just share Jesus so that, you know, many, many more. Um, could come. And I'm, I, I, if we get it right, I think we could say to Arsenal and Tottenham and all these places, give me a stadium for the weekend, mate, because we need it. So many people have come to church. And you'll find that they will come to church. They'll say, okay, we'll push, the, push the, the, the match back a bit so we can have service. That's revival. That's what God wants to do, I believe. Was 
can you think back to a time in, in the last 20 years where you kind of realized, oh, wow, this is this has kind of gone bigger. This has gone up a notch, perhaps that you weren't expecting. I mean, I think particularly about some of the people you mentioned with uh, political leaders, recognizing your work, praising your work. Were there moments like that kind of early on in the journey where you think, oh, wow, this thing's really firing and we're really going for it now? Do you know, I think there's once or twice, I've, you know, um, because it's scary. If you think, you know, I like to believe that I'm out of control because then I know it's God's work. It's not Les Isaac's work. It's, it's God's work. And I think what's really um, prevented me from feeling scary is because the church is involved. And the church, as messy as it is sometimes, it's got structure. It's got accountability, you know. And for me, that's that's a safeguard to say, look, there are structures in place. It's not all down to you. God's at work. He's given other men and women to do things. And so it's going to be okay. And and that's, I think for me as well is, you know, if God's at work in this, and you remember in the New Testament, there was a debate about who are these guys? Are they Christian? And, you know, the guy stood up and said, listen, uh, high priest, if this is of God, nobody could stop it. If it's a man, it'll fall. And I think for me, that reassures me that, you know, although humanly speaking, you feel, wow, this is far beyond me you know, there's reassurance that actually it's God's work, it's God's agenda, it's going to be okay. Hey, this is Sam. Really hope you're enjoying this conversation right here on the Profile Podcast today. Could you do me a favour right now? It'll take you just two seconds to give us a rating and a review wherever you found this podcast. Just a couple of seconds to give us a rating is so, so helpful. It helps other people to discover the show as well. So if you could do that, we would so appreciate it. Well, that brings us um, nicely on to something I think quite unexpected that happened last autumn. And um, I'll just summarise a little bit and then why don't you give us the detail of it. You're invited to speak at a parliamentary prayer breakfast that happens every year in the Houses of Parliament. It's a Christian run event. So there's Christian MPs and um, people from other churches and, and charities there um, to pray. And you're invited to to speak. And as I say, it just happens every year. But what happened this this last time was quite unexpected in that after you spoke, Sajid Javid specifically referenced your message and, and said that because of what you'd been saying, he felt like he could no longer serve in Boris Johnson's government and Sajid Javid resigned. And that then triggered a load of other resignations, which effectively brought down that government. Now, I'm sure when you were preparing your message, you had perhaps none of that in mind, but I'd love to, what, what's your uh, what's your reflection on that time? Because we in the Christian media were watching this happen with kind of mouths open at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps we shouldn't have been because of course, when, when God's mm-hmm. people pray, God does amazing things. But I bring it up in the context of what you just said, that actually if God's in it, God will, sure. God will do something. Sure. Um, but tell me, what are your memories of, of that time and, and really what unfolded? Because you're at the center of that. You know, I, I think, first of all, I want to really thank God for those Christian men and women who are working in that square mile, in that in, in Parliament there. It's, there's some formidable people, and I think the church needs to continue to pray for them, for grace, for wisdom, and for favour. The second thing is, is that, was, you know, I, I felt quite privileged and humbled to be asked to speak. And, you know, when I look around at so many great men and women who could speak, you know, far better than myself in that context. Um, I was deeply humbled. And actually, you know, I still get um, nervous when I'm going to speak. I still do after so many years. And perhaps that's a very good thing. 
Um, but I remember, you know, going in and and we've been talking, we're sitting down and Boris came and sat next to me and, you know, the Archbishop of Canterbury there and Claire Starmer over there and, you know, and, you know, Boris, I've known Boris for some time too, you know, um, as he was mayor and everything. And, um, you know, I'm, I was just saying to the Lord, well, look, Lord, um, this is your appointment. It's not mine. Um, considering that the year before that I was, very ill in hospital and there was 50 50 of me surviving um and 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 i knew that there was something special because one of the things i was called to remember remember the bishop of southern rang me whilst i was in hospital and says god hasn't finished with you yet um bishop christopher rang me and said god he's still got work for you to do you're not going nowhere les and um sent one of his priests to go and pray for me and anoint me and he himself came and prayed for me and that was that was powerful so sitting there I knew that there was a reason in my heart. I, I I didn't know the magnitude of the reason, but I knew that God had something for me to do. And when I got up to speak, you know, I spoke, I spoke passionately. I spoke what I believe God wanted me to say. But let me just say this. One of the astonishing things that I realized afterwards, that there are still many of us as preachers that don't believe when we preach something was going to happen. <laughs> You know, um, we don't believe it. You know, it's as if the Christian world didn't believe in the power of prayer. Yeah. You know, when yeah. Christians pray, something happened. We, you know, that's why we've got to pray. So, you know, we were praying and something happened. I I preach and I, I, I said to myself and I spoke to many leaders after this, listen, when we are in that pulpit, we've got to recognize that God's anointing, God's grace is upon us. The spirit of the Lord comes on us when we stand in that pulpit. And do you know something, Sam? Every Sunday morning, I always pray for preachers, whether or not they believe what they're preaching or not. I always pray that God will, you know, the words he speaks or she speaks, that God will use it so that somebody will come alive in Jesus. And so when I spoke, I just said, well, okay, you know, the archbishop is there. This, there. I've just said what I've got to say. I'm just the messenger here. <laughs> That's all. I was obedient to God, obedient to what God said. And, you know, I've said, okay, watch this space. And um, when I heard the response, I said, well, thank you, God. Thank you that you're still using me. Thank you. Your word is still powerful. And thank you that your word is being um, recognized, that it's still relevant and still able to intervene into the affairs of man. So for me, that was a humbling time, and yet it was a time where I could say to God, you have demonstrated your authority and power in the United Kingdom. I love that you pray that every week for preachers. And as you say, you've been preaching a long time. What have you learned about preaching over the years? Any top tips to share? Because there'll be plenty of people, there'll be plenty of people listening to this, myself for one of them. I need I need to grow in this area. I preach occasionally. Help me out, Les. What have you learned about preaching over the last years that you want to pass on to others? Do you know when, when my son, when my son was eight years of age, I was doing a mission in in Watford and Elstree, that part of London, um, just outside London there. And um I preached in this church and um I, I thought it was great. I, I did you know did a good preach and People responded to Jesus, and we were driving down the motorway going home. And I, I always asked my children, you know, I said, son, how, how was my preaching? And um, he looked at me and he said, daddy, it was useless. <laughs> <laughs> my eight-year-old son told me he, it was useless. 
And I, I thought, whoa. So I said to myself, I said, okay, son, why was it useless, son? Well, I couldn't understand your illustration. And, um, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't follow you, you know? I thought, oh, my goodness. And, and it really spoke to me. And so, Sam, from, so the next night I was preaching in a Baptist church in L Street. And I looked over and he was sitting on the lap of my wife. And I'm thinking, God help me tonight. I couldn't take two nights of being useless. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so he, he fell asleep, so I thought. And in the car coming down, he said, Dad, don't think I was sleeping. I was listening to you. You're much better tonight than you were last night. Now, <laughs> now there are two things I learned. Um, I think sometimes we preach too long. And we've got to make our mind up. How long do we need to to communicate um, what we need to communicate. I've gone to a point where I'm doing one sermon and I'm covering over three weeks because I said to myself, half an hour is tops. Yeah, It's tops, 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 tops. 20 minutes is lovely, you know? And um, humor, practical illustration and relevancy. And people must be able to walk away thinking, I need to do this. I was in. I was. I was speaking last week Sunday in Port of Spain, in Trinidad, and I, as I was walking through the door, a twelve-year-old boy came came up to me and said, "Thank you for that, Pastor. Thank you for that. I really enjoy your preaching." I said, "Boy, I'm going to be so glad I could tell my children I'm still I've still got it in me," and I think those things are so important. We need to be real as well. Um, you know, people are not in heaven yet. Okay. They're on earth. So our sermons must reflect something of people's lived experience. You know, what is it people are going through? What is it people are concerned about? You know, we must unpack the text to help people how, well, listen, you're going through that now? It, you know, it happened 2,000 years ago. It happened 3,000 years ago. Hey, it's here. And how God could help us through that. So it is about being able to be relevant and contextualize the text to where the congregation's at. That's really helpful. Yeah, thank you. I've learned a lot there. I'm sure uh, that will influence me this coming Sunday because I'm down to preach. So thank you. There's a, there's a lot there to, to take heed of. What's um, what's your view on, on the state of the church in the UK more generally? We mentioned that through Street Pastors, you've had amazing connections with all sorts of different parts of the church. Some people look at the statistics and they come out very regularly, whether it's the, the census or other research that shows fewer and fewer people are going to church. Some people say, look, we need to get our act together. Something's not right here. We've got to make some big changes. Other people say, well, Jesus said, even the gates of hell won't destroy the church. And actually, there are plenty of thriving congregations and are more optimistic. What's your view on the state of the church in the UK? You know, I, I'm always optimistic about the church because at the end of the day, it's about God. Now, I, I really believe that there are things that we can do. And we talked a little bit about that, you know, um, really, you know, the, let's, let, let's be honest. The church is doing some great things. Our PR is a bit suspect. We're not good at PR, the church. Okay. However, I believe that if the church, and, and, I, and I strongly believe we as a church have got to pray more together, not in our silence. I long for the day when the church is saying across the boroughs, the church is saying across cities and towns, we're coming together and we're going to pray. We're going to fast. We're going to wait upon God as the church. We're going to cry out together. We're going to intercede. We're going to supplicate. 
I think that's that's a big thing. I think the church have got to rediscover that Acts chapter 2 spirit. Secondly, I think the church has got to recognize that this is not about one denomination. None of us could own the monopoly on the truth, okay? Um, yes, we've got different traditions and we've got different ways of interpreting, but God has called us to be one, to love each other and to be one. And I, I think we need to, you know, do more to say to ourselves as the church, how do we um, help each other in terms of unity? How do we eat together, have these fellowships together? How do we stand together? You know, what are the things that we need to do together to push? Because if we're going to see a change in this, our nation, it's got to be with us together as the church, not as one segment of the church, not as one um, part of the church. It's not down to the Anglicans or to the Methodists or to the charismatic or, you know, it's, it's us as the church. And I think that, Sam, when we could do that, then I think God would show up in a bigger way than we could ever imagine. That's a wonderful place to leave it. Les Isaac, thank you so much for speaking to us here at Premier. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Sam. You've been listening to The Profile in association with Premier Christianity magazine.